It'll be great as we turn to the book of Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. As you're turning there, uh, just to be clear, Hope in our family, she is the driver. I don't know if it works like that in your house or not. She's a fantastic driver. I'm a terrible driver. She um, has a bumper. I do not. Uh, There are lots of things in our life that point to the fact that Hope is a much better driver than me. So when we're on the road together and she's getting us from point A to, to point B, uh, there are numerous conversations that take place. Some of those, uh, sadly, are about my inability to get us uh, to follow the map that's there. I really struggle with it at times, and I've realized why I struggle with that map so much. For me, even when the map... I mean, we're not even talking a folding map, like the old school Ray McNally ones that you would pull out of the passenger, the glove box, like you were going to war in the Middle East back in the day. Uh, we're talking on your phone, telling you the next thing to do. I really do struggle to follow that at times. And a reason that I struggle to follow that is because I get caught up in where I'm at and not where this is taking me. And when we read through the book of Genesis, I really do believe that for many people who struggle with the Genesis narrative, the Old Testament story of what God does through Cain and Abel and Adam and Eve, that we're very much like that. We see where we happen to be and we don't realize where the entirety of the story is taking us. And in this retelling of the story and in the telling of these stories... As we progress through the book of Genesis, we are not in a situation where God gets to Genesis chapter 4 and realizes that the world is bad and he has to reboot everything. God's not realizing the depravity of the world. He's revealing it to us. And he's revealing to us over and over, pushing against what's inside of every one of us. When we read a story about the fall of Adam and Eve and think to ourselves, yeah, but that's pretty harsh of God to just completely judge the world based on that one event. And God is showing how the idea of sinful humanity, that that's part of who we are. And we see this recurring book of Genesis, God running and showing us, revealing to us the depravity in the human heart, in the entirety of the world, And in each of us, that we are sinful people. If you're going to get from where we were last week as we wrapped up with Adam and Eve to where we are today in Genesis chapter 6, just to give you a little bit of a footnote, Cain killed Abel. Adam and Eve had another child. They named him Seth. Seth means replacement. Take that for what it is. And after they had their child named Seth, the world was repopulated. This is a very quick overview of that. But there's this one consistent theme that we see throughout. Something different has taken place because of the sin of the world. And that is that people die. Now in chapter 5, we see lots of long life. That's a really popular conversation piece to have about the book of Genesis. They lived 900 years. They lived 700 years. They lived 460 years. That is way different. But we could miss the point that God is making when we are focused so much on that. The point is not how long these people lived. The point is that they were supposed to live forever. And here we have in this story that they are dying over and over and over. Because the world is dark, the world is depraved, and it's everywhere. 
The story of Enoch is one story where someone walks into heaven. And the story of Enoch walking with God gives every one of us a glimmer of hope because it tells us that even in complete and utter darkness, walking with God is a possibility. He has offered us that possibility. Because rebellion, as we look through the story, has spread. It has spread from Adam to Eve to Cain to Abel to Lamech to the sons of the divine beings to the fallen warlike ones we see in Genesis chapter 6. It spread to every crook and cranny of, in, of the entire universe. The world is totally depraved. We use that phrase so much that we miss the depth of the meaning of it. That the world is in utter chaos. And they have grown accustomed to the utter chaos. They miss that everything that they do is opening up another box of chaos. Seeing what chaos is actually there. We, we recently got back from vacation. And when you get back from vacation, we always do our best to make sure that everything is, is set really well before we leave. It's so that when we get back, it seems like we've got a fresh start. Anybody else like that? Or you just leave the house on fire? Who, when you go on vacation, you make sure there is some, something that resembles normalcy for you to come home to a clean home. Anybody? Awesome. And for the rest of you, you need to pray more. But when you get home from a vacation, though it seems as if everything has settled, there is something that you're going to do that is going to unleash chaos. That is this. You are going to begin to open suitcases. And things will pop out of those suitcases. Clothes, clean ones, dirty ones. You will have a, a couple of critters that you bring back from your road trip that pop out. Jack in the boxes. All of these things coming out of your suitcase erupting into this new world. Erupting and you see that chaos is everywhere. When we get to Genesis chapter 6, we see that God is pointing out that chaos is in every corner and crevice of the world. Go with me to Genesis chapter 6, picking up in verse 1. When mankind began to multiply on the earth and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful, and they took them and they chose them as wives for themselves. And the Lord said, My spirit will not remain with mankind forever because they are corrupt, depraved, utter chaos. There will be 100, their, their days will be 120 years. That, that's a good lengthy life today. The Nephilim were on the earth both in those days and afterwards when the Son of God came to the daughters of mankind who bore children to them. They were powerful men of old, the, the famous men. You read through this text, there's numerous arguments that we don't have to get into as to who these sons of, of, of God were. But there, there are arguments that these are the fallen angels and they've chosen to have relationships with, with women. There are also conversations as to are these the sons of Seth. All of these conversations are great for someone to sit around and wax poetic about. But the point that we are making when we look at this text is you have these sons who brought corruption to the good that God had established in the created beings that you see. These women, there's a goodness to them. Because when we read through the scriptures, we see a couple of things happening. When we're in the Old Testament, it always depicts sin. And in the New Testament, when we see sin, it, the New Testament defines it. 
We see the Old Testament depicting sin, the New Testament giving us definition to it, giving us description of it. You you notice in this text, when you get to verse 5, when the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread, just like panic, on the earth, and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. The Lord regretted that He'd made man on the earth, and he was deeply grieved. Moses giving words for us to grasp and handle what's taking place here. And then the Lord said, I will wipe out mankind whom I created off the face of the earth together with the animals, the creatures that crawl, and the birds of the sky. For I regret that I made them. However, Noah found favor with the Lord. Now, there was a theme that carried us through the story of Adam and Eve last week as we spent time in that text. And that theme was what we pick up with in verse 15 of Genesis chapter 2. And that tells us that in the middle of chaos, God offers us hope. And right here in Genesis chapter 6, in the middle of pain, regret, and destruction we see God offering favor and grace. Favor and grace were things to be found in God, yet no one in their world is looking for it there. That is what is distinct about Noah. Noah finds favor and grace. But the better understanding of the wordplay that takes place in this text is not that Noah finds favor, but that favor found Noah. That grace found Noah. Because favor and grace are in God. Noah was in a world where favor and grace were in God. No one's looking for that. His name, however, means rest. Favor and grace are in God. Are you and am I looking for that favor and grace there? As someone who knows Christ Jesus, trusts in God's promise, trusts all that God has done for us in Jesus... Are we seeking to find favor and grace in God? To know Him. To have a relationship with Him that is deep. To be what Noah is, resting in God. Are you someone who is resting in God? Or are we seeking to find our favor and grace in other places? Are we seeking to find favor and grace in the things that our children do? The accolades that they gather up. The, the, the grades that they make. The touchdowns that they score. The races that they run. Are we people who are seeking to find favor and grace in the amount of money that we make from week to week, month to month, year to year? Are we people who are seeking to find favor and grace in what's going to take place on November 3rd? Are we people who are seeking to find the favor and grace of God in places other than God? You look at the text and it says that favor and grace are in God. Grace has found Noah. And Noah, because of that, is going to rest in that grace. And you notice in this passage, as you keep continuing with the story of Noah, that his faithfulness and his integrity, which are very important to this story, are a result of the grace that found him. And they do not cause them. The integrity that every one of us have as followers of Jesus is not a result of what we've done, but a result of God finding us. Grace creates faithfulness. Grace creates integrity. And that's not the other way around. 
grace creates this in God's people. You notice here that God's making this covenant with Noah. It's a, it's a word that we use when we talk about marriages. And your marriage covenant is two-sided. That God, However, God's covenant here is different in that it's not necessarily a two-sided covenant. God's covenant with Noah is completely one-sided. God promises. God carries through. God moves. There's no discussion between the two of them. The two of them. God says to Noah, build an ark. And Noah begins to build an ark. There's no questions that Noah asks. Like, hey, is it going to rain? There are no other questions like... What's an ark? There are numerous questions that he could have asked that he did not ask. He just starts to do what God told him to do. Go take the wood that belongs to the gophers and make a big box. That's basically what he says. That's a joke, people. Gopher wood. It's a that's nerdy preacher joke. Okay, I felt good. The gophers, thank you. Uh, thank you. And make a big box. A box that's going to float. It's going to be a three-story high box and you'll fill it with animals. It's going to be the length of a 1.5 football field. That's the kind of box I want you to build. And Noah says, cool. Let's roll. There's not even a cool that we know of. He just does it. And Noah's neighbors are being absolute jerks around him. Well, what we find in 2 Peter 2 is that Noah is called a preacher of righteousness. The word there is herald. That he's going to speak loudly to the righteousness of God because after all, he's the only one who's found that righteousness of God because that righteousness has found him. Noah's going to declare over and over for 120 years that this God is good, that this God is this hope, that he's going to build an ark that doesn't make sense because sometimes, friends, if we're being honest, the idea of being in the grace of God doesn't make sense. The idea in the world that we live in that we would find our favor and that we would find grace and things that everyone else does not find favor in, that does not make sense to them. That we would have satisfaction outside of what we can accumulate. That we would have satisfaction outside of the things that we can post and the pictures that we can show. That doesn't make sense. Sometimes God regularly calls us to do things that don't make sense. His neighbors are being terrible to him for 120 years. This is where the story gets tricky because so many of us spend time in this passage and we think to ourselves, this God seems cruel. For 120 years, this God allowed a man to build an ark to cause people to come to him and ask questions about an ark. To have that neighbor kid stroll up and say, hey, what are you building? It's an ark. What's an ark? It's an ark. That's what I'm building. For 120 years, God declared, I'm going to do something that doesn't make sense. And there is only hope in what I'm doing. God telling us things. God displaying things to us. Noah here is representing the righteousness of the God who has found him. He's going to build a box, a big box, for 120 years. And he's saying something when he does. But no one wants to be hearing him. Why? A.W. Tozer says this. He was Christian Missionary Alliance theologian, pastor. He said, most Christians don't hear God's voice because we have already decided we are not going to do what God says. How, much for, uh, how many of us in this room right now need that truth to intercept us? We're missing what God has told us to do. Because we want to do what we already think. 
It's a popular story, this global flood that we read of in the book of Genesis. We're five pages in to the book. And the world is flipped inside out, upside down, and there is chaos and reigning everywhere. This global flood story is one that runs throughout the entirety of the world. And lots of people like to fuss and complain and say, this is more than likely a myth because every story tells a flood story. But for one pastor that I spent some time with this week, not personally, just in a book or audio, I don't know, lots of things happened in my head over the course of a week while we were spending time together in his monologue to me. He, he lets me know that what if we're missing the fact that the, the, the idea that this story is told by so many cultures is not contradicting what God says, it's actually pointing to what God has done in the story of Noah. Those we see in chapter 7, verse 16, that animals begin to get on the ark. And this is where we like to make this into a children's room. Everyone believes that you should point out to your congregation at this time that this is not a children's story. As if a story about righteous judgment and drowning is ever a children's story. But you all know, and I, I know, that we like to decorate our children's rooms with this. And we like to have precious moments of this. If you don't know what a precious moment is, it's that large-headed porcelain doll... Noah's holding a sheep. His child who looks the same age as him is also holding a sheep. Those who entered, both male and female, entered just as God had commanded them. In verse 16, the Lord shut the door. That's where the story is a little bit different. In the story of Gilgamesh, if you Google that, the story of Gilgamesh, he's the one who shuts the door in that flood narrative. Noah doesn't shut the door. For whatever reason, whenever we think of this story, we almost have it in our head that this is like when I go on the boat with one of our church members, the one who lives in my neighborhood. That Noah is the captain of the ship. And everyone else is just going alongside of Noah, rolling down the river with Noah. Noah is in the boat like everyone else. Closed off from the destruction and depravity around him like everyone else. Finding his hope in where he has been placed like everyone else. Noah doesn't shut the door because ultimately judgment does not belong to human beings. Judgment belongs to God. And God for 120 years has said, I'm building a boat and now I'm shutting it. God's judgment there, present. And then we get to verses 17 through 24 of Genesis chapter 7. And we see a rhythm to this text that should sound familiar to us. Except it's an undoing of the rhythm that we see in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and 3. Go with me. Genesis chapter 7 verse 17. The flood continued for 40 days on the earth. The water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. God lifting above destruction. The water surged and increased greatly on the earth. And the ark floated on the surface of the water. Then the water surged even higher on the earth. And all the high mountains under the whole sky were covered. The mountains were covered as the water surged above them more than 20 feet. Every creature perished. Those that crawl on the earth, birds livestock, wildlife, and those that swarm on the earth, as well as all mankind. Everything with breath 
of the spirit of life in its nostrils, everything on dry land died. He wiped out every living thing that was on the face of the earth. From mankind to livestock to creatures that crawl to the birds of the sky, they were wiped off of the earth. Only Noah was left and those that were with him in the ark. And the waters surged on the earth for 150 days. Like, read, that's just like a nursery rhyme. This destructive passage. As the world is completely consumed. And the world is overwhelmingly destroyed. And there is hope in what God has placed people in. There are more rhythms what we see in the book of Genesis, however. Because in the book of Genesis, in chapter 1, with the story of Adam and Eve and the story of creation, God gives life. Here, God takes life. Early on in Genesis chapter 1, God has water and He separates the water. Here, the water comes together over the dry land. We see the phrase, according to its kind, over and over. In the... In the original creation account we see that it was the earth was good here we see that it's filled with violence over and over we see how these stories are contrasting one another and here from this point forward the idea of a flood becomes a prototype a a standard bearer for how God will talk about judgment in the Bible we see the flood narrative here God judging the world in Isaiah chapter 8 the army of Assyria comes like a flood In Psalm 124, we see judgment in the form of a flood disgust. The Egyptians are judged by a flood in the Exodus account. God shuts the door. God does the work. And judgment consumes everything. We read through this story and we see that there is rescue. But that rescue is for those who have rested in what God has offered. The rest that Noah's name means. To be people who were in the ark, in God's provision. Augustine said this, his, his name is pronounced Augustine. Um, if you are in that city in Florida, it's pronounced Augustine, where you can buy airbrush. But Augustine says this, You, the source of all good, my God, my rescue at every stage. God's always rescuing. Resting, and rest, resting in God and being rescued by God. I love this text. I, I love to, to spend time in it. Because it does show us some rhythms of how God works and what God does. Because God's doing a supernatural thing in judging the world in this passage. God's using natural things to do a supernatural thing. Using everyday things to do something that is supernatural. He brought the supernatural, a global flood, about naturally. As water began to collect. Uh, He removes the supernatural naturally. They will come upon Ararat. They will be rescued there. In the same way that God brings our eternal life about naturally. Through through the incarnation when Jesus was born of a woman. We see that God removes our death. This supernatural act through a natural death. Where a death took place. God doing this work of working in us. Providing for us. God using everyday things to do things that, ex- that are inexplicable. Other than him doing something overwhelming and supernatural. We get to chapter 8 and we see that God is remembering. What a phrase that God would remember. It says in 8 verse 1, God remembers Noah. Now it wasn't the way that I forget things. If you've ever been to the grocery store... 
There's a possibility that you've come home and you've not brought home what you were supposed to bring home. You forgot that. Maybe you forgot your child at school. That's happened to some of y'all. This is not the type of remembering that God is doing here. God's never forgotten Noah and the rest and rescue that he offered him. But here God begins to actively remember him. Doing the work of rescuing him. The idea of God remembering is the idea of his movement towards faithful, active intervention. When we consider the idea of when, when, when someone finds out that they're pregnant and they're going to have this baby, over that course of time, their body is preparing them throughout the entirety of their pregnancy to deliver a baby. They're getting ready for that. But there comes a point where it's the go moment, where it becomes an active thing. In this passage, Noah is, had been in the ark for so many days, God not forgetting him, but here God actively begins to engage with what's taking place in Noah to offer rescue. We see that in chapter 8, verse 15. Or actually, verse eight, chapter 8, verse 1. God remembers Noah as well as all the wildlife and the livestock that were with them in the ark. God caused a wind to pass over the earth and the water began to subside. God separating. The sources of the watery depths and the floodgates of the sky were closed. And the rain from the sky stopped. And then the water steadily receded from the earth. And by the end of 150 days, the water had decreased significantly. Again, here in these first few verses of chapter 8, we see God recreating as he remembers. Day 1, wind blew over the earth. It's a theme that we see in Genesis chapter 1. Day 2, the sky. We see three mountaintops. 6 through 12, God shows us the birds. And 17 through 19, he talks about the creatures. We look in 16 through 19 in chapter 9, and God talks about the blessing of humanity. We have what Jim Hamilton says is Adam 2.0 in this story. God doing a rework of the creation narrative. However, as we look, we see that God, that Noah remembers because of the faithfulness of God, how to interact with him. Verse 6:15. Then God <coughs> spoke to Noah. Come out of the ark. You, your wife, she can come out too. Your kids, your sons, your wives, all of them. Bring out all the living creatures that are with you. The birds, the livestock, those that crawl and on the earth. And they will spread over the earth and they will be fruitful and they will multiply. So Noah, along with his son, his wife, his sons, wives, they came out. See, he listened. All the animals, all the creatures that crawl, all the flying creatures, everything that moves on the earth came out of the ark by their families. Everything comes out. And then we see in verse 20 where Noah interacts with the Lord in a way that brings honor to the Lord. Noah built an altar to the Lord. And he took some of every kind of clean animal and every kind of clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. God is doing a work as he meets with Noah. Noah is showing us that he is going to 
make a sacrifice to God. Now, in Christianity, we, many of us, we're familiar with Christianity. If you're not, welcome. In Christianity, the idea of an altar, at least in the church that I grew up in, it's a platform or a table that's at the center of worship. It's where at the end of a service, this ambiguous call comes. And we all go to the altar for the call. It's a phrase that we know. It's a phrase that we're familiar with. But the Hebrew word for altar, it's a little different. It's a word that I can't pronounce, like most words. But it only has that one meaning, altar. It's from a word which means to offer, to kill, to slay an animal or sacrifice. It's the idea of divine judgment coming together. The story of Moses is, or what here is unique to us because the offering that Noah makes is whole. It's explicit that it is whole. That he is going to offer a complete, extravagant, whole sacrifice to God. We don't have a picture of that in the rest of Genesis with the exception of the possibility of Abraham and Isaac that we would be pointing to a whole sacrifice. A complete sacrifice. But ultimately, Noah, who has rested in God, is offering this complete sacrifice because he realizes the whole deliverance that God has offered him. You look at this text and you see God doing a work in Noah to meet with him. Allowing Noah to be at a place where he would offer sacrifices to him. To offer sacrifices and to meet with him. For those of us who were in Jesus... For those of us who have met with Christ, those of us who trusted in God and have found true rest in Him, the altar for us, it's no longer a place. The altar for us is a person. The altar for us is a person, a whole, complete, extravagant sacrifice, not offered up by a human to God, but offered up by God so that humans could be right with Him. The offering that God has made for us in Jesus is one that is all of those things. Complete and extravagant. Noah built this altar to find... And and God was pleased with this aroma. And we know that as followers of Jesus, what pleases God is what He has done for us in His Son. We read in 1 John, as John talks about the, the person of Jesus, he says this, My little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning or at wanting sacrifice. And not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Friends, favor and grace found Noah. But we see the story of Jesus in this, in the bigger, better telling of the story, in that Jesus is God's favor and grace that we can know, that finds us. We look at this story and we see the phrase that Noah walked with God. In Jesus, we see that Jesus is God. Noah's righteousness in this passage is incomplete because we see in this story that he will ultimately and eventually die. But Jesus, the righteousness that he offers is complete because though death would be something that he clothed himself with for our sake, it does not defeat him. He is resurrected. The hope that we have in Jesus is the righteousness that God has provided for us in him. Charles Spurgeon says this, Nothing can damn a man but his own righteousness. 
So for every one of us who are wrestling and struggling and working through what it means for us to do good things, be good things, act good ways, nothing can damn a man but his own righteousness. Nothing can save him but the righteousness of Christ. Friends, God has offered us a Savior who we can find our complete, total, utter rest in. The story of Noah is going to eventually come to a place, and we'll spend time moving that direction next week. But Noah will we'll see, and he will, he will die, and sin will take place there, covered in shame. For those of us who are in Jesus, for those of us who have trusted in what God has done for us in Christ, He wants you to know that shame does not have to be your end. That you can know Him. We eventually read in the book of Hebrews that by faith Noah did the things that he did. Even though he would fall short and fail, that by faith he trusted ultimately in what God would do through his son. And I pray that we will be people who do the same. I want to invite you this morning just to bow your heads right where you are. If you're anything like me, then there is a grand possibility that you try to find your favor and rest in places that are against you. In ways that you really can't stack up. And things that fall short. I would encourage us today to take a text like this and think through what God has taught us from it. The favor and rest is ultimately found in what He has done for us. For those of us who are His people, He saves us from judgment. His righteousness closes us in and carries us through the utter chaos that is life. Would we spend time this morning as a church reflecting on the rest that God has offered us in the grace and favor that He's shown us in His Son? And will we allow a day like today will we spend time talking about a difficult passage to be obedient to God And to rest in His wholeness. And in the holiness that He offers in our place. If you need me, I'll be in the back right hand corner of the room.